Can I run around my whole living room without touching the floor? Can I get a VIP pass to the grocery store? Hi, listeners. Hi, are you okay? You okay? You're right. How are you doing? Oh, no, we're going to be You're like right. one of those stay-at-home meditation apps now. We're here to unburden you from all the questions you have on your mind. Relax all your muscles except for your vital sphincters. We've made the decision to essentially, apart from this perhaps opening 90 seconds or so, not talk about the thing everyone else is talking about at all. We know that people come to listen to this podcast to soothe their anxious minds and take your minds off things that are difficult to deal with, and uh, so we don't want to ruin that with current affairs chat. Yes, we're going to give you the usual shit we do, which is, uh, you know, interesting details about the real world, but not the same details everyone else is talking about. And so also, we're not likely to be addressing questions specifically about current events, but if you do have questions about uh, what to do during current events, uh, we might do some of those, you know. How to keep yourself busy during the lockdown. For instance, I've been making crumpets with Martin's discarded sourdough starter, which is how he's keeping himself busy on lockdown. Well, I've always been worried about the responsibility of having a starter. It's essentially like having a, a pet, isn't it? It's, you've got to feed it every week and make sure it's got what it needs, doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. Got to take it out for walks. I'm committed to a, a stretch of time now where I can look after a sourdough starter, but sure. it's, it's too cold. It's not growing. It's not starting. No. But it's making great crumpets every day. It is. So would recommend we tried making a homemade pizza basically from scratch flour and water and whatever else you put in it i wasn't really watching uh, <laughs> but my wife didn't have the right flour so it came out a bit doughy mm. yeah. i'm not saying that's a classic anecdote but it is true i would say we've got all the time to experiment but we don't have the flour to experiment that's right <laughs> can't afford flour experiments to go wrong <laughs> also i've been eating a lot more from the garden which is quite nice um, soil quite nice apart from the fact that the main fertilizer that's being used is cocos craps have you managed to turn them into a pizza or something i did cut out loads of spinach the other day thought i was being efficient when i went to the garden i put it in the colander to be washed and prepared you would think right obviously i would think but i'm guessing this anecdote is going in a different direction well there was a marital miscommunication oh uh, my wife thought she was being helpful by putting the spinach on herself mm. like that evening but she didn't wash it because she saw it in the colander and thought i'd already washed it Uh, and then i knew that we had a bowl of steaming cat shit (laughs) i was like i don't think we should eat this even though it is everything that you've just grown for the last three weeks uh right well we're going to kick off uh this month with uh, an example of something that is uh contextually valuable to you listeners but essentially entirely irrelevant to the world at large (laughs) Uh, it is from brock in tamworth australia oh tamworth did you know there was a tamworth in australia martin do you want to do that bit of material now is it famous for pigs? There we go. Do they have a snow dome? All of that. Uh, Tannery. Very good, leather, <laughs> very good leather museum in Tanworth. There we go. Yeah, get it all out now, oh Martin. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I can't go back to the Tanworth material. Oh, no. Not to be confused with Bilston, where the glassworks were. Martin. Brock says, uh, in your last episode, Helen, you talked about the face cutouts attractions that you find at the seaside. Yes. It just so happens that I am making one of these for a local bowling alley. Wow. Having never made one of these cutouts before, I went to do some research. By the way, that's a bold commission, isn't it? If you've never made one before, the bowling alley says come and make it. How do you learn that you can make one of these until you make one of these? It's like so many things in life, isn't it? Yep. You and the pizza. I ran, he says, into the same problem you did, Helen, as to what these things are called. It's a universal problem. But more importantly, what could be more important than that, Brock? (laughs) I could not find any information on how big the cutouts should be. If they're too big, then the illusion doesn't work. Uh. But if they're too small, drunken idiots will get their heads stuck. It's like a stocks, isn't it? (laughs) So, Helen, answer me this. Is there a guideline for how big the holes should be. Well, how naive of me to have just thought the guideline was the human face, because I'd imagine the difference between a big face and a small face is still, like, not enormous. It's a difference of, like, a few centimetres, right? Not a yard. I would imagine it would be the average human face size plus maybe an inch of slack. Well, I think for safety, you'd want to go bigger, wouldn't you? My inch of slack was actually more for, like, difficult hairdos and beards and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I was kind of, I suppose, disallowing people with enormous heads like Helen. (laughs) Have you ever put your head through one of those and not been able to get your head through? Because if you haven't, obviously they do err on the side of large. I think when you're little, you can get your whole head through fairly regularly. And then as an adult, you more just sort of press your face up 
and the perimeter of your face is hidden from the photo rather than your whole head going yes. through. But given that Brock has said that a problem, if they're too small, is drunken idiots getting their heads stuck, I would say err on the side of a bit too large. Because I think the illusion will still work. It might seem to you like, oh, there's a bit too much breathing space around a human head. But mm. in the context of a photo, it's not such a huge proportion, is it? There's also an, an element of comedy, isn't there? For example, if you have someone with a bald head and they put their head through the space under, uh, say, for example, in the classic seaside tradition, a kind of bosomy lady in a stripy swimming costume's fuzzy hairdo. Yeah. Uh, that's funny because you see the fuzzy hairdo, then you see the gap of the baldness before the face even though the illusion doesn't work in the sense you could ever believe that was as painted that's sort of the joke yeah part of the fun is them not working perfectly right uh, have you ever got your head stuck in anything yeah <laughs> <laughs> such regret i remember going to sleep over at a friend's when i was i would guess seven or eight and um it was a room with twin beds and i woke up in the night with my head wedged under my bed <laughs> i don't know how that happened i remember being very uncomfortable oh that's man. so humiliating because you're at the friend's house be bad enough in your own house it wasn't humiliating because no one else knew right okay fine i thought it was a case of like everyone's up for their breakfast out their pajamas and you've still got your head wedged under the bed no i was just upset at myself for having betrayed myself in my sleep how helen mm, exactly why what have you got your head stuck in cat flap uh what last week <laughs> no i was eight years old uh, I was filming a comedy action sequence on my home camcorder. Of course you were. <laughs> but I'd watched a lot of crappy, like, kids' comedy films, you know. So this was kind of like a Disney star, that darn cat, Turner and Hooch-style caper, I guess, mm. that I was making at home with my pet cats, because that's what I did, because I was an only child. And the plot was, I was chasing the cat. It led me to follow it through the cat flap and get stuck. So I was deliberately putting my head through the cat flap in the in the co concept that the character I was playing had their head stuck in the cat flap because they'd been stupid enough to follow the cat through the cat flap like in a crap Disney comedy. Oh. But then I really did get my head stuck. <laughs> Verite. Yeah. <laughs> of course, later I then had the rushes of me realising my head was stuck with like 10 minutes of awkwardness, not knowing what to do. I didn't want to ask for help. I was old enough to know that it was embarrassing. Uh, and also I was aware I was on camera and I was kind of half thinking is this Jeremy Beadle material? Like, is this good enough to send to someone? <laughs> I don't want to mess this up by being weird now. So, yeah, uh, I did have it all on camera, but I, I think I must have thrown it, literally thrown it in the bin in shame. Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Sarah from El Cerrito, California, and I am a fast talker. I recently took a job where I frequently talk to clients on the phone and have gotten some feedback that I need to slow down. I can manage it for short periods when I'm really concentrating on it, like this, but when I'm thinking on my feet or having a regular conversation, I speed back up again. It's not nerves, I just talk fast. So Helen and Ollie, answer me this. How do I train myself to speak more slowly? I don't know if uh, the same is true of you, Ollie, but I am pretty sure judging by old recordings of myself from the retro episodes of this, for instance, amongst other things, that I have slowed down my talking pace a great deal. Yeah. I mean, it's not. I, I mean, of course, once you kind of make the leap from being a hobbyist, basically, which is what we were when we started to this being our full time jobs. Uh, obviously, we've now had over a decade of listening to our own voices. I think once anyone does that, you become much more aware of your voice as an instrument, don't you? So you, you think yeah. much more carefully about what words you can emphasize in a sentence when you've been talking too much, whether there's an end to your story and all that stuff. It's not just speed. But yeah, definitely listening back to your own voice regularly is one of the ways to help you modulate how you talk we're not saying sarah that you need to do a podcast for 13 years i think just record a few phone voice memos of yourself and listen back to them a few times you could gamify it in a very simple way like so find a paragraph of text and literally time it mm. and then challenge yourself to add five seconds each time you read it until when you listen back to that voice memo, it doesn't sound like you're talking too fast. Oh, I love that plan. I usually allow, as a rule of thumb, about 130 words per minute if I'm looking at a script and thinking, how long is this going to take to say? That's good. I've never been that precise mathematically myself. That's interesting that you actually have a metric for it. I wonder whether there's something you could do with your hand where you're basically conducting yourself. Metronoming yourself. Right. You're setting the pace with your hand. Watch your hand as you speak. Well, also, the good news, Sarah, is that you've got a job on the phone. So you're not face-to-face. -face. So um, there are tips from radio hosts that could probably help you here because obviously that's... The, I mean, I used to host a radio phone-in. One of the things that I always did is I had in front of me on a little postcard the word you 
written on it oh. just to remind me because it takes years to really get into the habit of referring to the listener as you as an individual which is important in all forms of audio but particularly in phoning where you're trying to get someone to phone and and talk to you about it. you want them to feel you are talking to them and asking them a question um so i used to have that in front of me but that technique of having a thing written in front of you i know that amal rajan the bbc's media editor he has the word slow down written on the postcard oh. in front of him oh. because he naturally speak he does speak very very fast so either the word slow down or maybe a serene scene. I know that sounds kind of naff, but you are calling from California, Sarah. So maybe people around there are more into this sort of stuff. But, you know, something meditative, something calm, a picture of an ocean, something that makes you just feel a bit more chilled out. Maybe a desk toy that is one of those things that moves very slowly. Like I used to have a sort of egg timer that was filled with a very viscous liquid that would very slowly kind of blob down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Train yourself to breathe slowly and then incorporate that into the speaking I also think that one of the reasons that I speak more slowly now is a confidence yes. as I get older. I particularly noticed when I went into my 30s that I became more confident in various ways. And I think my voice slowed down because it's kind of a power move in a way. Like often you're rushing to speak because you're expecting people to interrupt you. Yeah. And the other thing is my brain is just slower and I need the thinking time. I, I'm just curious to know what she does for a job now and what she's actually advising people about. She commentates on greyhound racing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's an auctioneer. <laughs> Here is a question from Katie who says, I'll start by explaining that while me and my neighbours do get along, and we'll hold small conversations with each other if we accidentally make eye contact over the fence. I wouldn't say we're close. No shit. Well, you're, you're close by uh, proximity. Right, Just exactly. not emotionally. We have not yet gone out of our way to spend time together or do anything overly nice for one another. Now, one of my neighbours has recently had a problem with badgers digging up the garden mm -hmm. and has bought Ooh. one of those deterrent things that plays high-pitched noises intermittently to scare them away. Uh, I think my dad had one of those for moles. He used to have a lot of problems with moles in his field. Yes. I think eventually he poisoned them. <laughs> These are supposed to be inaudible to the human ear. However, both myself and my husband, maybe being on the younger side, can <laughs> clearly hear it going all night. The noise isn't loud, mm. but since it is so high-pitched, it is jarring and maddening all the same and stops us from sleeping. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, that, that actually is. Yeah, this started as like, it seemed like a light-hearted thing about badger deterrence, yeah. but actually stopping you sleeping, that is quite a big deal. Yeah, and those high-pitched noises are really painful. I have quite high-end hearing, so often I can hear things that Martin can't. I remember once he was testing a piece of audio equipment and really amusing himself that if he twisted a knob, I would be like, ah, and uh, <laughs> no effect for him. Uh -huh. What a prick. <laughs> I mean, this is what they do to get secrets out of people <laughs> yeah, play exactly. them painful noises to make matters worse says katie i think my neighbors have been so impressed with the effect that they are spreading the good word to others that are having the same problem and now we fear that more are going to start springing up so please answer me this how do we tell our neighbors that this thing is driving us bonkers i know they've already tried a few things that haven't worked and so i don't think they're going to give it up without a fight I mean, actually, I think if they're reasonable people and you haven't given us any reason to think that they're not, it's it's a reasonable thing to not want badgers to eat your lawn. And it's it's a humane thing to not kill them, but to scare them away with noise. Yeah. Then I'd imagine that most reasonable people, especially now we're in this scenario, they know you're in the house next door all the time. Mm. I think they are not going to fight you about this. Uh, it's about you going to them, fronting up and saying, look, I'm, I, be nice about it. I'm really sorry to bother you about this. I know it's really helping with your badgers, but actually we can't get to sleep because we can hear the high-pitched noise coming from your lawn. I think I'd be devastated if someone came to me and said that. I would turn it off immediately. Maybe give them a gift-wrapped other form of badger repellent. <laughs> well, which is what? I mean, it is poison. That's the problem, isn't it? Well, my dad, one of the other things he tried, I can't remember which pest this was for, maybe for foxes. He had this spray that allegedly contains lion poo. Mm -hmm. that supposedly keeps other animals out certainly contained a certain kind of shit <laughs> <laughs> i have though in researching this question found an absolutely fascinating uh side article on the internet which enlightened me into a, a period of history that i just did not know about in 2005 Ooh. a chap in barry in wales invented a gadget that emits a frequency of 17.4 kilohertz Mm. Mm. Um, now that's a rate that isn't like really really high 
but is high enough that it can only be heard generally by young-ish people, so like teenagers and up to about 25. Oh, so it's the kind of teenage dispersant. Yeah. Did you know you're saying that like it's a normal thing? Did you know that that was a thing? I couldn't remember what, how it was actually used, but the stories were like, you put it in a public place and stop yeah. goths congregating or some nonsense, yeah. which is just ridiculous. I just, but it's beyond ridiculous. I mean, there's complete. I'm not the kind of person who normally gets animated about civil liberties because I'm. I, I, <laughs> I often think there's a reason for that, and you know, it's it's a payoff. But that is just like complete discrimination. I just couldn't believe what I was reading. Yeah, that's just like young people should not be allowed to use public space. Yeah, but not just public spaces. It was like the bloke who invented it. He did it for a grocery store. So it wasn't. And, and, and like, fair enough. They had a problem with you know youths hanging outside, and that must have been difficult. But that means any young person is tarred by the same brush cannot go into the grocery mm. store because it hurts their ears. And also, young people have to exist somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was anyway. It was a big story in kind of two thousand and six, two thousand and seven ish, and they sold I think about three thousand of these devices. That's not that many. Well, you say that, but that's every big town in the country, isn't it? They just put some noise cancelling headphones. The way that the uh, the youth had their rebellion on this, Martin. And again, I don't know if this is just a tabloid story and it didn't really happen that often, but um, someone turned the sound into a ringtone. Right. <laughs> so that um, teenagers could install it on their mobile phones. This is in the days before smartphones, kids. Yeah. And when they were in the class at school and they weren't supposed to be looking at their phones, <laughs> they'd get a text and the teacher wouldn't know that they'd got it. <laughs> ah. um, so that was kind of a, a funny uh, take on the story but I just I, I genuinely was outraged reading it and I don't get outraged by tabloid stories I'm very familiar with how they work but I was just like can this really have happened but it, I, I read into it and it did happen and the gadget is still technically available it's £495 it is still legal Evil. there have been a few like attempted lawsuits and the threat of the lawsuit has has uh, forced you know shop owners and people like that shopping mall owners to take them down because you can say this is causing discrimination against the young by having it. Mm. Yeah. But I don't think it's ever actually had a legal judgment, so you can still go out and buy the things. And I just I couldn't believe what I was reading. Can you imagine if there was a device which did the same for old people? Only people over sixty can hear this. Like there would be an outcry. But I also learned Helen along the way that there is a word for the thing that you've got being able to hear high frequencies. Oh, uh, really? And the science of it is called ultrasonics. Is there a benefit? Because it hurts. <laughs> well, not only is there not really a benefit, there's not really any scientific research into it. And it is that classic thing of the world being designed for men, unfortunately. Yep. I read this paper by one of the acoustical researchers who goes around with special microphones listening for ultrasonics. And what he said was, the two reasons essentially why there isn't much research into it and therefore no one's really looking for a cure to it or trying to lower the frequencies of sounds that are all around office blocks and things incidentally, is one, because most people can't hear it so they're not aware that it's a problem but two more specifically the people that can almost never hear it are adult men so the people that are affected by it are infants young people and some adult women like you and just reading some alternative badger repellent measures and thinking which are going to cause you katie the least disruption because apparently they're scared away by light so if you get motion triggered lights in the garden that might help, but then that might also wake you up if your bedroom faces the garden. Or you can get these scarers, which is like a little statue uh, that you put in the garden. A scare badger. Their eyes light up if um, a badger comes near and that will scare them off. But you need quite a lot to cover all the corners of your garden. So it might be a bit like your neighbor's garden has all these glowing-eyed <laughs> sentries, like evil gnomes. <laughs> they could install an electric fence... I mean, it depends how close you want to get to chat to them over the fence that you've mentioned. Yeah, true. Also, that's expensive. I mean, I know it's not super expensive, but that's going to be hundreds of pounds versus the 20 quid and the badger repellent, isn't it? Apparently, badgers hate the smell of scotch bonnet peppers and of citronella. There we go. It's always citronella, isn't it? It's always oh, the answer. I love the smell of citronella. I know. Yeah. Who doesn't? I mean, everyone in nature. They could anoint the perimeter with citronella and chop some scotch bonnet around. Although I suppose if they have pets that they don't want to eat scotch bonnet, <laughs> uh, that would be a problem. Or... And I'd imagine this is how my dad dispersed the animal threat in the end. Mm. Spray the garden with diluted male human piss. Okay, now that mm. is something you could make at home at the moment. Give them a gift-wrapped badger repellent. Yeah. You could give them <laughs> yeah. one of like the gnome with the scary eyes and a big jar of diluted piss. If you've got a question... Then email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Answer me this 
podcast at googlemail.com Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com Samantha from Sheffield has been in touch with multiple questions, Helen, about ghostwriters. Ooh. <laughs> she says, Helen, answer me these. How do they get paid? Is it a lump sum or depending on sales? If it's a lump sum, where is their motivation to do a really good job? If they did a really good job and sold more than expected, could they get more money, etc., etc.? So that question, money. Do the authors choose their ghostwriters or do the publishers? Mm-hmm. And who is the most famous ghostwriter? Let's go through the questions and answer them. All right. Well, I'd say famous ghostwriters include Mozart, if you're including composers writing works that other people get credit for. And, I mean, tons of songwriters and singers started out as pop song ghostwriters. H.P. Lovecraft was a ghostwriter and a famous... I didn't know that. ...novelist in his own right. Who did he... He wrote a thing for Houdini. Wow. Yep. Was it a very racist piece of Houdini's work? There's lots of kinds of ghostwriters. Like, I think people forget there's medical and academic ghostwriters. Those are very controversial. Hip-hop ghostwriters, also very controversial. And I wonder whether that's because it's supposed to be like a personal art. And same with stand-ups as well. Tons of stand-ups have ghostwriters. There's a bunch of really influential French philosophers like Bourdieu and um, Latour. And apparently they dictated their work. And they had like several dictation secretaries, supposedly, in different rooms. So they would walk from room to room, like exposing their brilliant thoughts. So there's this sort of theory that their ideas were pretty incoherent. And it was actually these dictation secretaries that kind of synthesized the work into the great philosophy that people know today. But in the case of books, it is much more simple, isn't it? If you're a uh, a pop star or a politician and you either don't have the time or the skill to be a professional writer over a number of months but you do want the hefty advance from the big publisher to write your memoirs you, it is a commercial relationship that struck up how does it work it works differently depending on the publisher and the author i think generally the publishers will choose the ghostwriters and i would imagine a publisher has a better idea of what a ghostwriter needs to do than say a celebrity who is going to partially dictate their memoir to them well they're going to know the contacts as well aren't they they're going to know right. you know th- this person's from reality tv so let's give them jade goody's ghostwriter yeah right or they might have authors that have worked on their own books and they're like well this person would be good to ghostwrite this other thing mm. i thought it was really interesting a few months ago when demi moore's memoir came out It was ghostwritten by Ariel Levy, who's a very well-known writer in her own right. And um, her publisher had read one of Ariel Levy's books about miscarriage and gave it to Demi Moore and said, look, I think you have a lot in common. And so they Mm. chose her to ghostwrite. And what I thought was unusual about it is even though her name is not on the cover of the book, she was mentioned a lot in the press for the book and in interviews about it. And she was even interviewed herself about it. And I think that is rare. Yeah, yeah. I think it's partly the internet that's making people be more honest because the details come out anyway. Like, you know, in five years' time, you'll type in the name of the book and a Wikipedia article will come up saying who it was written by. So I just kind of think, in a way, get on top of it and get a get a credible, high-caliber name if you can afford it anyway. It's a bit like with um, Elton John's memoir. That was mm. uh, ghostwritten by Alexis Petridis, wasn't it? Oh, wow. A well-known Guardian music journalist. Yeah. In that case, too, I saw Alexis Petridis did interviews about writing with Elton John because people were interested in that process. And yeah, I think that is a positive thing, isn't it? But not everyone is famous. Most people who are ghostwriters are professional ghostwriters and their job is to be anonymous. There was a company that was called like, something Syndicates that actually set up syndicates of ghostwriters to churn out kids' book franchises like The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Mm. So just for decades, they would have writers turning out because they would turn out more books than it's possible really for one person to write. All the Sweet Valley High books, which all have Francine Pascal on the cover, but it's famously a team of writers churning them out. But I've kind of been a ghostwriter a couple of times and I was just paid by the hour or the day. I wasn't given royalties or a percentage of the publishing deal. And I think getting a percentage of a book that sells well is uncommon for a ghostwriter. I think usually they're either paid like a wage or they're given a lump sum at the start of the project and then a lump sum upon completion. So when Samantha is asking about what's their motivation to do a good job is to get the second half of their payment, basically, at the end. 
but also getting hired again by the publisher to ghostwrite more books. But I guess it also depends on the relationship that the writer has with the subject. So in the case, I, I understand if you're being um, evasive about who you did your ghostwriting for, that's fine. But in that case, I know you were writing for essentially a, a brand, basically. It was a companion book for a TV show. But if you're writing in someone's voice where you're representing their life story, if you've had to go and interview them, spend time with them, mm. perhaps spend a couple of months with living in their house or whatever... I imagine then you do build up a personal relationship with that person and they'll feel a responsibility to you, maybe not to have credit, but to have a bit more of an equal share of the funds. You would hope. Also, ghostwriters do a hell of a lot of research. They might spend a year doing research and writing this thing and the person whose name is much bigger on the cover or the only name on the cover might not put in much time. Apparently there are celebrity cookbooks where the chef in question has never even read the book. <laughs> that I can believe. Feels lazy. I was interested to see that on Gwyneth Paltrow's cookbook, It's All Good, her name is on it, but then under that it says, and Julia Tertian, in smaller writing, but Julia Tertian is a famous cookbook author in her own right. Mm. When she was doing the publicity for that, Gwyneth Paltrow had to keep saying, no, she's not a ghostwriter. Like, we developed the recipes together, but I wrote everything. Yeah. So people are still really touchy about the idea of things being ghostwritten. Like, it seems to be a bit of a source of shame for some and that is, again, why I thought it was interesting where Demi Moore was like, I couldn't have done a good job. So I found someone who could do a good job. Yeah, that is interesting. I think that's a positive change. I've actually been offered a ghostwriter before to write something with my name on it. Huh. Um, it was only an insignificant corporate article in a business to business thing. I can't even remember what it was about. You know, I had an offer come through and it was like decent money. It was, I don't know, 500 quid for, you know, a thousand words or something. And I thought, OK, I could do that. I don't really want to. And I was about to refuse, and then the person said, it's fine, just take take it, we'll put your name on it, we'll get someone else to write it, you can have final copy, and then we'll just put your name and face on it. And I just felt really uncomfortable about it, and then I insisted on writing it, even though I didn't want to, <laughs> because, I don't know, it's odd, isn't it? Because if it was, if I was presenting a TV show, and people would assume I was reading a script that had been collaborated on by myself and the producer and other people, but there's something about your name and face being put on a piece of print where it's only words on a page. Like, if you didn't write it, what have you done? Like, yeah. the, the words are the words. It's acknowledging that point that it's your brand, isn't it? It's uh. your face or, like, whatever small, you know, smear of celebrity that is what people are coming for, not the quality of the writing or the yeah. opinions. And that's kind of a little sad for most people who have self-respect, I guess. Exactly, yeah. It's just not a world that I particularly like. But then I, I can write. I'm not an amazing writer, but I don't need a ghostwriter. So that's why it would feel like copping out, I suppose. Well, I always think about that about artists. Those artists who essentially don't do their own works. They like go, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. And they have a bunch of assistants who actually make the work of art. And I get that if you're like sawing a, sh a shark in half, you're probably not going to be able to do that on your own. But isn't the point of art that you enjoy the process, that you want to be making the thing? Mm. If what you're doing is like, at that point, you're admitting that you're a brand and really kind of going, yeah, I'll, gi I'll give people the general idea when they do that, the actual work. And that seems really strange to me. Wouldn't you want to be involved with the, all yeah. the aspects of the process? Otherwise, why are you doing it in the first place? Apart from for the yeah. money. Well, for money. Yeah, that's the answer. <laughs> in that particular yeah. instance that you just gave. I mean, Damien Hurst was quite open. It was for the money. I remember my dad being really pissed off that um, an art teacher at my school who was a more successful sculptor than my dad had people in the studio building the stuff for him. But then mm. it's like the idea versus the manufacturer of the idea. But I think with words, there isn't such a big distinction, is there? Also, I guess you know, if you're a writer at all, and we both are writers a bit, that you have the ultimate control on those words when you're the writer. And so actually, even though there are editors involved and there's perhaps the person in question whose, whose book it's supposed to be, really the control lies with the person who's typing the words. And I just, I just wouldn't want to give that up, I think. I remember years ago, I really needed money at the time. And I went to be interviewed by a guy who was very, very rich and wanted someone to ghostwrite an enormous book of short stories. He basically wanted a book of short stories where it was hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And you would open it and read one every day. But he didn't want to write the stories or he just wanted some help. 
he no he wanted just to like give me a load of anecdotes and for me to turn them into witty stories and Ugh. i read one of the anecdotes and it was just like someone complaining about a parking ticket and i was like this is an impossible <laughs> job <laughs> i need the money but not I, I can't do it i've been asked to ghostwrite a book actually once which was really it came out of nowhere because the only book i've ever written is our book which i co-wrote with you i've never actually written a book and i've certainly never ghostwritten a book but um i met a guy it was a it was a bloke i interviewed for the modern man we tracked him down because we'd heard gossip about him but he'd never spoken on the record before our interview on the podcast. And he's a, a gay porn star called Trojan Rock. He'd had a very successful career as a TV producer when he was in his 30s. Um, his real name's Gavin. The episode is called There's Something About Gavin, if you want to find the episode of The Modern Man. And the story was about when he sold his company for loads of money and he was still only like 41 or something. He decided, rather than let's set up a new project or let's retire or let's buy a yacht, he decided to move to Brazil and become a porn star. And I just thought it was a really interesting story because it's rare that you hear someone say, yeah, I had loads of money. And so I decided the thing I really wanted to do the most was be a porn star. So it was an interesting conversation. And I guess he just, I don't know, he just must have felt a connection with me or thought that I, because I was interested in his story and, and people hadn't asked him about it before and I was open-minded. He then wrote to me afterwards and said, really nice to meet you. I want to write my autobiography. Would you write it for me? Wow. And uh, I thought about it because I thought it is a really interesting story, but a why me apart from the fact that i've shown some interest mm. and b why me because i've never written <laughs> I've never written a memoir before <laughs> and i'm not a writer so I, I just said look i'm trying to focus on my broadcasting work at the moment but it, it was an interesting opportunity to be offered i once had to review freddie flintoff's autobiography i'm sorry in fact i think i may have had to review it twice once in paperback and once in hardback <laughs> and apparently freddie flintoff is a pretty funny guy yeah this was a very boring book, even given that it's about a subject I'm not hugely invested in. So it's like all the Zaltzman genes went to the other side there, didn't they? Uh, exactly. But it was just so plainly bashed out by someone else. And I thought, like, if you're him, how are you going to feel about the final product here, where it's just tonally not really like you at all? Well, obviously fine, because it made it into paperback, didn't it? Yeah, he's probably quite happy with the check, quite happy to do the book tours. I mean, some people, I guess if you're not like a literary person, it just doesn't matter. Like, it probably matters more to us than the conversation we're having now because we've got English degrees and we care about that sort of thing. I'm not even a big reader, but I, I can read a book. And so it would concern me if the book was shit. Other people, I guess, just use them as coffee table ornaments. Or you buy them for someone as a present because you're like, that person likes Freddie Flintoff. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Safe bet. It's essentially a big card, isn't it, with Freddie Flintoff on the front. Why are all Yao's fan sites just about one thing? The only way is up is not the only song she sings. What about Abandon Me? One true woman, all good thing going. Her single from 96. You should make your own Yaz site to fill in the gaps. Since you seem to think all the current Yaz sites are crap. Go to squarespace.com, build your Yaz site and put Yaz back on the map. The only way is up. Being stuck at home during a lockdown is the perfect time to start your side hustle. <laughs> and you might think, you know what? I do have an entrepreneurial idea. I always wondered if it had anything in it. It doesn't need any startup capital. I have nothing else to do right now. Get your website up and running. It's your legacy. <laughs> Indeed. We talk all the time about how Squarespace makes it easy, and they do, and you can design a website in a matter of hours, and you can. Of course, like any of these platforms, it does involve kind of learning the intricacies of how it works. And therefore, if you do have a week to spend designing it, it's going to be great. Or maybe 12 weeks. <laughs> if you need a project right now, genuinely, it's a really good idea to build a website at the moment. It will take your mind off other things. Yeah, indoors fun. It's something people can look at as well when they're bored right. at home. Yes, if you want to reach beyond the walls in which you're quarantined. Um, and they do make it easy. Everything's there in templates. So you can do a gallery, you can do a blog, you can do a store, you can do a contact page integrate your social media embed media players go to squarespace.com slash answer use the two-week free trial to see what squarespace is all about and then if you want to sign up you can get 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code answer, answer. okay here's a question from james in canberra who says helen answer me this why is leopard print sexy Mm. I'm not sure that he's saying that he finds it sexy because he then goes on to say, what is it about this tan and black combination that implies sexiness? So I think it's, I think the question is more motivated by, I've seen a lot of videos from the 80s. <laughs> leopard print appears to be considered sexy. I don't understand why that would be because I don't want to fuck a leopard. 
enlighten me. We don't know that James doesn't want to fuck a leopard. He's not said <laughs> Again, that. Again, I'm interpreting. I'm interpreting. You're seeing a lot I, between I his wrong. words, Ollie. Is, is that what that Netflix documentary is about? I think leopard print has managed to really hang on to a lot of connotations of what it meant to wear the skin of a very dangerous and somewhat rare animal. Ah. So apparently leopard print was first known to be garbing goddesses of ancient Egypt and Greece because the skins were so precious and also to get one without dying yourself was uh, really quite a feat. Of course it was, yeah. So there's a lot of cachet attached to these pelts and understandably... And also people now are like, oh, how disgusting, like skinning an animal and, you know, just for display. But to be fair, you know, (laughs) thousands of years ago, there was no internet. There were no zoos. There was no petter. Yeah, (laughs) there wasn't, certainly wasn't. If you lived in a place that had never seen a leopard, short of an artist drawing it, which of course was popular too, you know, the only way to see it would be to bring back the skin. You're not going to bring a leopard back on a boat. So, I mean, I I can sort of see that. I mean, it would have been an amazing material to witness, wouldn't it, if you'd never seen an animal like that before? So I think the first time it was sort of a particularly prized thing for a human to wear was like 1700s, but it would have been very decadent. But then the first known like leopard print fabric was from, I think, the late 1700s. And do you remember we had a question and answered me this quite a while ago about... Yankee Doodle, why is it stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni? And we talked about how macaronis were these dandyish young men, quite effeminate. They were known for their over-the-top dress. They wore leopards and they were ridiculed for it. But Mm. at the same time, they were trendsetters, influencers, if you must. (laughs) Around then, the print became fashionable. And then like 19th century, not so much. But then in the 20th century, it came back in and like it's basically stayed in fashion ever since. So early 20th century it had that status symbol thing like real fur was still like expensive and flash but also you had these like women's liberation movements that often wore leopard print fabrics in the 20s it was a thing and then in the 1940s because you had women somewhat liberated by war and then in the 60s the whole youthquake thing they wore leopard but then by the 70s it was thought to be trashy so in the 70s then punks co-opted it because they wanted things that other people thought were a bit disgusting Mm. in the 80s it had that whole like bet lynch vibe and i think that was probably people who were young in the 60s wearing what they felt sexy in in the 60s but they're now middle-aged so in the 80s i think people were a bit like "Eh." and then in the early 90s the designer alaya did like this very famous collection which was just like all these supermodels wearing leopard print all over Mm. and i think since then it's always been quite a fun print that's been in fashion but that doesn't quite say sex though james is saying i mean we have to agree with his contention that leopard print is considered sexy but i know what he means i think it's a bit cheap and trashy but it does have a red light vibe doesn't it so where does that come from well i think that partly comes from the attraction of it being expensive and exotic would then trickle down into other garments so if someone was wearing like a leopard print bra people would have thought oh that visual clue to these other things but in 1947 christian dior did this like very famous collection because it was like post-war and it's the first collection where it's like oh rationing no more and all of that and he did this like tight leopard print silk dress and he said if you're fair and sweet don't wear leopard print so i think he was really trying to like reinforce this impression that it was for sexy women come on shaggers the war's over Let's get on it. They were selling it as a very seductive fabric and then like Rita Hayworth and Marilyn Monroe would wear it to look like bombshells. Yeah. I guess also, I mean, I don't know if leopards are great shaggers particularly, but um, I would say along with like tigers, jaguars, pumas, they're on the sexier spectrum of the big cats, aren't they? (laughs) Whereas, you know, like lions are actually, you know, they're very mighty and powerful and everything, but they're a bit straggly. If you actually see a lion, like it's got flies buzzing around its face, loads of poo around its bottom, like I say, very powerful. But it's power rather than sex, I would say, a lion. Well, also just the lion doesn't have a snazzy print. With the lion, it's about the silhouette rather than the fur pattern that people would recognise. And also less sleekness as well, generally. Obviously, they can, at certain times of the year, that when they're not getting enough prey, then they look thin. But obviously, when they are getting enough prey, they eat a lot, don't they? So they're, they're quite fat. Whereas, again, like the leopard is a bit more lithe and athletic. Maybe when a leopard's killed something, it also is fat and surrounded by flies with poos all over its bum. So <laughs> Quite possibly. You just don't but it's not that. the image that comes to mind as readily. You know, that's all I'm saying. I'm just saying if you were to divide if you if one wanted uh in, in an Android Lloyd Webber way 
to divide the cat kingdom into fuckable and non-fuckable cats, I would say that uh, leopards are in the top half. That's all. But is it just you've been conditioned by this idea that leopard print is a sexy fabric? No, I've not been conditioned. I'm genuinely making an aesthetic judgment on the sexiness of leopards. I think it's just also been a shorthand on screen for such a long time, probably coming from like the Marilyn era of bombshells where it's like put someone in Mm. leopard and that is immediately indicating that they're a sexual person. Exotic. It's just fast track, isn't it, to that? Or if there's someone old and wearing it, then you're like, that's a past it delusional person. Jackie Kennedy wore a coat in 1961 made of real leopard. And it was such a trend-setting coat that then nearly quarter of a million leopards were killed for their skins that decade. And that's why in 1969, they introduced the Endangered Species Act because of Jackie Kennedy. Wow. Wow. That's almost too good a a fact for me to really believe it's true. I can believe that there was legislation in place before then and it it tipped it over, but that's still a fascinating little tidbit. It's like if um, something from L.K. Bennett that Kate Middleton wears leads to like an endangered, boring shoe act in seven years' time. If you want more stuff to listen to while you are in confinement, and I don't mean in the sort of like medieval pregnancy sort of confinement, mm. just mean the quarantines, then why don't you head over to answermethisstore.com where you can buy all five of the Answer Me This exclusive albums. Uh, although I'd imagine the Christmas one right now is mm, not the right one. No, I disagree. Okay. There's actually been a trend that I've spotted. I think the Hallmark Channel in the US has started running a whole load of Christmas movies because it makes people feel nostalgic and reassured. Oh my God. So actually, <laughs> now might be the perfect time to listen to the Answer Me This Christmas album. Okay, I'm not judging if you do. Fine. <laughs> Why don't you get our Christmas album? Only 200 and something sleeps to go. And uh, you can also get Answer Me This episodes 1 to 200. That's right. So we've got 183 additional episodes to this one, which you can hear for free. I hope you agree that is a reasonable and proportionate freemium offer. (laughs) But if you want to hear the first 200 episodes, you can only get them from, well, you can get them from Apple and Amazon, but the links are at answermethisstore.com. And if you buy them from us directly, we get more money than if you click on the Apple or Amazon links. And if you buy them and listen to Answer Me This from end to end, that will take up every waking hour for at least a couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm not recommending you listening to them all end-to-end. I'm just saying it's a possible thing to do. Absolutely. Here's a question from Cybrand in New Zealand, who says, bear with me, this question takes some setting up. We've got time. We do have time, and I have deemed the setting up to be curious and entertaining. So just drift along with us. Cybrand says, my dad lives in a small town in the north of Canada that is well and truly remote. Uh Uh-huh. It's surrounded by all the lovely and picturesque Canadian stuff you could want. Mountains, glaciers, rivers and such. Cardboard cutouts of bears. <laughs> but the town itself is pretty bleak. It's a typical boom-bust mining area that hasn't seen much of a boom for a couple of decades. And as such, the population has dwindled to a few hundred colourful locals, my dad being one of them. This sounds like a pitch for a Netflix series. I feel like this is Northern Exposure 2.0 ready to happen. Over the course of 40 years, my dad has been slowly collecting the heritage buildings from around town and restoring them in an effort to keep some of the area's history alive. What, as in literally buying the buildings? More than that, Ollie. He doesn't actually get on with most of the other town's residents, though, so has taken to moving entire buildings to his corner of town. Wow. Like... A shit life-size game of Monopoly. He even has a genuine opponent. They each own their own hotel, restaurant, grocery store and gas station in order to avoid having to patronise each other's businesses. This is the opening 10 minutes of that pilot episode, isn't it? But I'm in it and I'm enjoying it. God, it's great. The result of this competition is that Dad's corner of town looks like a gold rush era postcard that's been tinted with watermelon pinks, bright blues and lime greens, while the rest of town is made up of lifeless grey buildings, many of which are empty and most in a state of disrepair. Anyhow, Dad is a bit of a collector and not just of old buildings and rivals. (laughs) He likes old stuff in general, particularly old electrical appliances and, most specifically, old toasters. 
He loves toasters. That's right. It's a question about toasters. <laughs> it's not even about the buildings, you idiot. Psych. <laughs> when my brother and I were kids and lived in a more populated place, my dad and my stepmom would travel down the province and, under the guise of visiting us, drag us to all the dusty antique shops within a hundred kilometre radius. Then, dad discovered eBay. To date, he's the proud owner of thousands, yes, thousands of antique toasters. Okay. So... Shit town, shit ton of toasters. That's the mm-hmm. strapline for the series. Yes. One day, this will all potentially be passed down to my brother and me. So, Ollie, answer me this. What the hell are we supposed to do with it? What, the buildings or the toasters or well, both? both. Neither of us has any desire to live in the town, nor in a fortress of toasters. Did I mention there are <laughs> thousands of toasters? I suppose if you divide them up between you equally, at least there's half the amount of toasters. That's right. The good news, obviously, is that property has value, uh, regardless of whether it's an antique collectible or uh, bricks and mortar. So, I mean, you know, you shouldn't feel uh, like it's a burden. I'm assuming that the property doesn't have a great deal of value, which is why his dad has so much of it. Of course. Clearly, in a remote part of Canada, it's cheaper to buy a gas station than it would be in London, for example. But nonetheless, just because it's more affordable, that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. Someone might be willing to buy it. I would suggest killing two birds with one stone and opening a toaster museum inside one of the buildings. People love a novelty museum. That's true. I love a novelty museum. Depends how remote this town is, though. Like, if it's literally the only thing to do in, like, a 500-mile radius, I'm not sure I'd go to the toaster museum. Parts of Florida were considered, like, desolated swampland before they put Disney World there. You know, it was of interest to environmentalists, but no one else. Now it's the world's biggest tourist destination. That's I do think true. it is possible to turn things around. With global warming, maybe northern Canada will be very popular <laughs> soonish. If he's got all these buildings, why doesn't he turn them into some kind of living museum? But a museum of what, if not toasters, though? But what's a living museum? How would that work? A living museum would be of, like, oldie mining era gold rush northern Canada. So you'd have to pay actors to work there and say, hello, I work down the mine and I have well, this toaster. Disney had to pay some people to populate the original Disney, right? Using your example. Yeah, I still think quirky toaster museum takes up less floor space yeah, and then but I'd rent the rest out. It's not really solving the problem. I'm dealing with the big problem first, which is the buildings. I think either that or period film set. Yes. Because you've got this like candy-coloured, restored town that is old and no one's really using it, so you don't have to block off a functional town, that, which is difficult. You need a lot of permits. Yes, and if your father's rival has outlasted your father, he will then build his own film set to compete. Yeah, but his will be all drab and grey. Fine. I mean, that will attract filmmakers from around the world who can film in both drab and grey and historical exteriors in the same location and get a tax break from the Canadian government. I don't think it's a bad idea. And then, I think with the toasters, either you find the toaster equivalent of the shop All Saints that will buy them for their window displays, or Mm -hmm. you sell them to a props house, because it's often really difficult to get period appliances that are boring but they need them to build up houses for films and TV and stuff. But they don't have them. Yeah, it helps with the issue of value as well. Because I've looked a little bit into the um, antique toaster market and the ones that are like the original electric toasters, you have to remember, like there wasn't electricity, uh, you know, until the turn of the last century. Um, And it took many decades for people to find wires that were safe to heat up within a toaster and make domestically on a wide scale basis. Um, So there were many prototypes and there were important developments along the way. And so the ones that are collectible aren't the ones that are necessarily the best looking uh, or the ones that had the most mainstream appeal when they were successful. The ones that are collectible are like the first attempt to do it and they only made a limited run, but they've got that kind of steampunk look about them. Those are the ones people really want. So like uh, an original General Electric D12 model toaster can go for $4,000. Whoa. Well, does it have to be functional or just looking nice that's a really good question i haven't checked but i imagine that of course if it's functional it's going to be worth more but i know i think aesthetically you'd be happy with a collectible toaster if you're a toaster collector and getting your hands on the crown jewels they tried lots of different materials before they settled on the ones that are now mass produced so there are ones made of wires and porcelain and copper so those are the ones that are worth not all of them four thousand dollars but certainly you know let's say five hundred dollars to the four thousand dollar mark Um, So I think when you inherit the toaster collection, keep the one you really love, sell the ones that are worth a lot on eBay, you will get, you know, it's a reasonable investment. You'll get back whatever your dad paid for them at least. 
But the ones that are actually not the valuable ones are the ones basically that you're talking about, Helen, because the ones that were mass produced and therefore a prop maker would want in the background of a film set to indicate a normal family house. Those are the ones that aren't worth very much. They're only worth like $40 each, but you've got loads of them. So it's not a bad suggestion. But the problem is the difficulty. If you have to sort through the toasters, figure out which have value, all from New Zealand, by the way, then it's a lot of overhead for anyone inheriting it. So I suppose the thing would be to try and encourage some of the sorting of the collection while your dad is alive to do it. Have you ever met a collector, Helen? Yeah. I mean, of course he's got a very uh, a precise archive, I would imagine, of exactly what he's got, surely. But if he could begin the dispersal, maybe you could say, you know, this would be a great collection to donate to the Toaster Museum of South Korea or whatever, you know. <laughs> it doesn't exist. I looked. There isn't, as far as I can tell, anywhere in the world, a toaster museum, which is why I suggested it as a proposition, so that there is no existing collection to sell to, as far as I can tell. But do take heart from the fact that a collection is always going to be worth more than any individual item. So, I mean, you know, when you find the right buyer, someone in the world will be building a rival toaster collection. They may take all of it off your hands. Well, listeners, if you are in the market for a few thousand toasters or a town in northern Canada, Mm. and you're willing to wait a while, then get in touch. Or if you have any ideas as to how to dispose of a parental collection of some size. But we need your questions to make more episodes of Answer Me This. So do send them via email or voice memo if you'd like to record your own voice, because we love hearing your voices. And our email address is on our website, answermethispodcast.com. And we have numerous other entertainment provisions available for you to download across the internet. So much auditory amusement. The Illusionist is on a break at the moment, so I've been making Tranquillusionist special episodes to help lull you to sleep or to calm anxiety. Oh, that's novel. So I did one where the listeners selected their favourite soothing words, and when the Celebrity Imagine video came out, (laughs) I did the lyrics of Imagine, but with the words arranged in reverse alphabetical order. And I played the chords in alphabetical order. Well, you made something fun out of something truly horrendous i tried to make it as pretentious as possible but i still couldn't get close still couldn't get close couldn't approximate the original (laughs) no i'll have to work on it so there are going to be more of those uh, while the illusionist is on a break and also my show veronica mars investigations is back with season two of veronica mars which is a stressful show but doesn't have illnesses in it so that's at vmipod.com and the illusionist is at theillusionist.org and in ollie world uh four out of my five podcasts are still currently uh on air fuck that is there an ollie world theme park in the making <laughs> uh, although one of those podcasts is this one, um, and uh, I shall shortly be starting the Ollie World Theme Park Companion podcast. Just, yes, just. Yes. <laughs> you can discover all of them at ollieman.com. The one I would like to highlight in particular this episode is The Week Unwrapped, uh, which is a recent award winning current affairs podcast of mine. But we don't talk about the same current affairs as everyone else. Uh, That is our MO all year round. In recent weeks, we've discussed the conservation of rhinos, the boom in black market cannabis in territories where it is legal, which is a really fascinating Mm. story. Um, And also the return of skywriting. I bet you didn't even know that skywriting was banned in the UK, did you? I didn't know. Coming back. It's just too cloudy, really, to be pointful. Uh, Absolutely. Basically, it turns out Grant Chaps is an aviation nerd. That's why it might be coming back. Oh, God. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, fun facts, like you might learn in Answer Me This, delivered in slightly more sombre tones than the Ollie Man you know and love from Answer Me This, but it's still recognisably me, it's just me with the tie on, (laughs) Uh, then uh, head to theweekunwrapped.com. Martin. Well, as of today, when this episode comes out, there are 236 episodes of Song by Song, a podcast about Tom Waits. Are there? Fucking hell. Yeah, there are tons. So, How did you manage to accrue that? I thought you were on, if I had to guess, I'd have said like 70 or something. And we've been doing it for nearly five years. Jesus. And it's a weekly podcast about the music of Tom Waits. Uh, I Tom mean, Waits there's, done there's a lot, lot of songs. This is a great time to catch up. Okay. And if you really just want to listen to music and hear people talking about music and it's very enjoyable, listen to that. Uh, I've also been involved with a podcast uh, which has just come out called Down to a Sunless Sea, uh, which is a memoir. Uh, Dave Pickering talking about his dad's journey into old age. So slightly heavy uh, subject matter, but really wonderful storytelling. Excellent. Uh, right, well, that that is it from us for this episode. But please remember, there's also more Answer Me This at answermethisstore.com. We'll be back halfway through the month with a retro episode, but you have to subscribe to hear that. Uh, so make sure you press subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And in the meantime, keep well and look after yourselves, and we hope you're all okay. Bye! Bye.